This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. episode 37 of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase, continuing our track for the 1001 film introduction to cult and obscure cinema, which is the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange list. For tonight's show, we will be changing things up from our usual format in favour of something more a little conversational. While in respect for my guest tonight, I must also advise not to listen if easily offended, and instead of writing angry emails, perhaps check out some from the archives section instead. Um, but my guest tonight is not only a cartoonist, a porn historian, a podcaster, but also the creator of the cult Vine turned comic turned book series, uh, Cinema Sewer, as well as being responsible for producing both graphic thrills as well as the sugar spread coloring book. It of course gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show Rowan Bouget. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for obviously uh, coming on. Um, obviously, as we were talking about before you come on the show, we're you're now celebrating 19 years of Cinema Sewer. That's right. Um, and for those not familiar with the, your work uh, at Cinema Sewer, how would you best like to describe what you do at Cinema Sewer? Um, well, it's a movie zine, so it kind of comes from that whole uh, very late 80s, early 90s zine scene kind of aesthetics so everything's hand handmade uh it's got a very comic booky kind of uh feel to it uh it, it's it's printed comic book format uh it's very much it's very personal it's uh, uh it's written in kind of in a, a first person kind of feel so it's got it kind of feels a little bit like you're not only reading film journalism but you're also reading someone's diary uh it's very it's got very much like a, a i call it a a, a, a the the writing style is like a letter from a friend but the uh, uh the research that goes into it is is basically is, is almost academic. I, I put years of research into the articles. Yeah, so it's sort of essentially just highbrow thinking for lowbrow cinema. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, the, the, but the writing style is very is very accessible. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I when I started Cinema Sewer, it was um, just um, you know photocopied. Uh, I would print up uh, a couple hundred copies. Uh, it was before that I had the internet, so it was just basically. You know, me in a, in a small town uh, trying to reach out and find out if there was anybody else out there that was into these weird movies um, that, I, that I liked. And uh, now, you know, 19 years later, it's like almost every friend that I have, uh, all of my, um, you know, my close friends and, and people I hang out with uh, are all people that I've met because of this magazine. So it's, it's, it's changed my life entirely. Yeah, definitely. I mean... It's funny, obviously, the fact that you came up through the zines. I mean, certainly when I was starting to get into cinema, zines were sort of that tail end. So this is around 99, but zines were still out there. You would still go to screenings and you would still have that sort of uh, film scholar 
type there that would write up the little uh, write up on the films and stuff. So it's so bizarre to see how zines have obviously evolved. Obviously, as the internet's become more prominent, from first doing like GeoCity web pages, which were just awful, uh, to now really, the, would you say the blogs now replace zines, or is there still zines out there that uh, you sort of follow? Well, uh, in some ways, yes, they, they entirely replaced zines um, because they, they really they give you the, the same sort of um, um, end game in terms of reaching out and trying to get some sort of uh, taking a, a, a passive thing like watching a film and turn, turning it into a creative process where you're actually and, and, and interactive, where you're interacting with other fans and stuff. Uh, and it's also can be done so much cheaper you can to have a blog, you know, <laughs> to, yeah. to, than it is to print this stuff up and spend all the money to mail it out. But um, on the other hand, there's also something very specific um, to publishing to self-publishing uh that isn't quite replicated with um with blogging uh and i think um i, I am seeing a bit of a resurgence back to it uh in the last three or four years especially i've been doing a lot of small press conventions and and uh it, i am seeing a lot of people um talking about how they they uh they get something from from self-publishing that they're not getting from blogging yeah i think the sending firm my own space you obviously being a blogger that I'm now finding our territory sort of been encroached on by the video blogger and right. the people more the fight the obviously the platforms for video blogging, the more easy to sort of react and respond and have that sort of interaction with, with the presenter, so to speak, then you you just don't get on blog blogs because blogs don't tend to work too well with smart devices. Um, and I think this is what lot seen a lot of people have said that they just don't have that interaction that they used to have. Uh, maybe like back in the early 2000s where it used to be this sort of connection point the same way the zines obviously provided you with your connection point uh, right. for my personal sort of blogging generation we just found it through like the blogs so but you yeah, it, it is different it's kind of it's kind of interesting I, I i'm not um i do notice that some people from my generation from that came out of that zine zine are there are they are a bit technophobic where they they see uh, uh you know the, the internet as a as a almost like a, a thing that's killing off the the media that they love yeah. and i i don't have that at all to me it's just another tool so and the fact that you obviously still you're one of the few people actually still working within print media i think is also interesting i mean is there any sort of point you think where you would stop working within print media and just go completely digital or do you think that cinema sewer has this sort of place where it has to sort of exist in this sort of physical media um, well, for me, it's um, as an artist. Um, for me, it's it's an, it's it's very much. Uh, uh, I work very. I use the word selfishly because I don't really know what, <laughs> how else to to say it. But I have to be to be creatively energized. I have to um, I have to get a thrill out of the work. And for me, I, I'm just I've always had a hard on for print. <laughs> I just it it's what you know, just jazzes me about doing this stuff. Uh, I, I don't get excited about putting my work on the wall. I've been invited to be in gallery shows. And I, you know, and I go and I go to the opening and it's, it's okay. It's not, I don't know. It's like, yay, it's on the wall. Nobody's really looking. We're just drinking our drinks. It's like, yeah. I don't know. Uh, the internet, it's okay. I mean, I don't get a big thrill. Like, oh my God, look at my work right there on the computer. Like, you know, it doesn't really, but when I get my magazine back from the printer, I'm it's it every time is like the first time it's like oh my god I, I fucking did it like I it, yeah. it it 
it's there. It's there. There's boxes of them now. Now I just have to disseminate them out into the world. And it's like it's almost like spreading a virus <laughs> of, of, of your ideas and your art. And I, I, just cracking open that box every every time, man, I, I can't – it just sends shivers down my spine. It's, it's nice to actually hear so – obviously someone who's been in the industry so long. I mean they said 19 years is a long time, especially to be a writer within the film critic in sort of industry. And to still have that passion is very refreshing, especially when so many people that I came up with are now pretty much finished with the industry. I think of the original group I came up with, there's about three of us left. <laughs> you see like younger bloggers and they quit like at year six and it's sort of like, what is it about me that's still going? So it's refreshing to know that there are people obviously working in older formats, as you said, you work in print, uh, that still feel, feel that sort of drive. And you're saying obviously, it- sorry, it's it, it's it's whatever you 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 find um, yourself getting passionate about. It just grab onto it and hold and hang onto it. You know, D- don't let anybody tell you that 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 medium uh, is is dead because it's only dead if you if you let it die. <laughs> I would hope that that we never lose print media. I know there's something about buying books. I still cannot get into ebooks. Um, so the fact that, that that there are publishers out there that are stoically like sticking with print print media is just always uh, so refreshing you're saying that there's sort of small press conventions i know that on the first episode of your podcast you talked about that uh when you met tim and the fact that they covered your booth over with a uh, top polling because they thought it was too filthy <laughs> to this day that's still one of the my favorite um <laughs> convention stories it's just so funny because i traveled like across the continent uh for i live in the west coast of canada and vancouver and i traveled all the way over to to uh, uh, uh maryland and you know on the other side in the east to go to this convention and to finally get there and um, i've set up my table and uh, you know i got all my you know my filthy uh uh smutty film magazines out with you know but i mean they're they're fairly it's like drawings of boobs and stuff. It's not that bad, but yeah, it's got a, it's it. Cinema Slayer has a very like a focus on uh, the more the the sleazy side of things, the classic porn, the uh, vintage exploitation films, the sexploitation films. So it, it has a it has that sort of Carnival Barker like lurid like you know step right up and see you know the giant chugs you know it's got like that <laughs> kind of like it's 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 intended to get a reaction so i got up and i left my table like oh everything's set up just the way i want it no i've got 10 minutes before the show starts so i'll go have a look around and uh uh this this will you know i once things get busy i may not get a chance to leave my table so this is this will be good so i walk around and have a look at a few other people's things and uh they let the doors open i'm like oh better get back to my table and a security guard had come along and covered everything with a blue tarp and told me that I wasn't allowed to display my work <laughs> because it was too dirty. <laughs> so I'm like, how am I supposed to sell the work from under a blue, an opaque blue tarp? It's ridiculous. Like, so I was just, I got infuriated. I was just like, the man's trying to keep me down. <laughs> and, I was like, and I'm like, I whipped the, the tarp off and I was just like, they're trying to shut me down. They're trying to quiet me. And I'm like, I got the, the attention of the yeah. entire room. And it was one of the greatest sales <laughs> techniques that I could have ever have implemented. I sold everything yeah. before the day was a, a, a quarter over. It was, I, I, I don't know why I don't bring a friend in a security guard costume ev- to every show now and bring the bring the blue tarp and we'll cover it up. And <laughs> oh, definitely. I think it's the best sales tactic. I know. Yeah, because that- people are like, "What? I'm not supposed to see this. I I must have it." Like. <laughs> uh, I had a friend who used to do club promotion, and he used to inform the local uh, Christian. Christian morality group um, of, 
like Freedom of this false information, like they were doing like mock devil worship and stuff at these club nights, and they would turn up and protest, and you would get all this free publicity because the <laughs> local rag would turn up and like, oh, Christian group protest is lurid nightclub acts and stuff, and these things were never happening, but they never bothered to research it. So, <laughs> and it's uh, human psychology, I guess. Yeah, I know Kevin Smith turned up to uh, the protest of Dogma, and he basically turned up with all these signs like bombarding in his own movie and these protesters had no idea who he was of course <laughs> but uh if you watch the i think it's the uh the second uh, uh night with uh kevin smith movie actually talks about the whole uh process of how they went and they embarrassed all these guys because their science was so much prettier <laughs> they yeah. put more work into protesting uh, it always amuses me the fact that that are people obviously wanting to censor uh, sort of smutty material, especially in these times where we're supposedly supposed to be all free thinking and able to handle these sort of subjects that there's still people out there who obviously want to censor what is essentially a, a collection of filthy drawings. Yeah, um, I mean... Not to dismiss your work at all, I just obviously try to find the best <laughs> way I can describe it, really. Cause it's, well, I mean, I feel the, the same way. I mean, I, I what it, what is it that, you know, what is, what's, what's gross or disgusting about a, a a drawing of a nipple like it's yeah. for it like it's really the way i draw it it's really just looks like a circle with another little circle in it <laughs> it's i draw it i'm not doing anything photorealistic it's just you know but i've been banned off facebook for a week at a time for a drawing of a nipple i read uh, that i was, I was like wow <laughs> it's kind of amazing like I, I i mean it's almost a compliment like wow my drawing must have been pretty good yeah you should maybe start another protest group for that. It's like, <laughs> the trash are bougie down! <laughs> I mean, but, uh, yeah, it's... I mean, it's still it's still uh, fantastic, but I think, for, certainly for myself, the first time I came across Cinema Sur, and again, this is when I was working for Borders, and we had the sales rep, and we were talking about the DVD Delirium series, and I was saying what a big fan I am of Fab Press, who obviously put out your book. Now, they put out the collections of uh, Cinema Sewer, and they, she was like, you know, you should check out this book, Cinema Sewer. And mm. this was, I think you were on volume two at this point. Okay. And uh, obviously they sent the book through, and I'm like, oh, we've got this great, cool book coming in to my bosses and stuff. And of course they start looking for it, and uh, yeah, let's say my promotion opportunities were pretty much shot after that one. So <laughs> thank you very much for that one. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah that's... That, that, yeah, that, that was a dirty book. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Yeah, it's. Um, I think this is this is a problem. If you've not got open friends, it's not the sort of book I would like advise sort of leaving around. Maybe just warn people up, in, people in advance of what they they're going to expect to be cinema sewer. But at the same time, it you look for it, and you obviously got the lurid graphics. But you have this sort of keen insight into not only cool cinema but pornographic cinema as well. And as you said, you're writing it with this scholarly sort of edge to it. It's not just like you would read in like Hustler or Penthouse sort of thing, this sort of throwaway reviews of filth. It's the idea of obviously trying to get uh, deeper into source material, which makes it a fascinating read, even if you're at the same time being kind of disgusted by what you're reading. <laughs> well, I, it's the history of it that's so fascinating to me. It's, uh, I mean, I, could, I, I sometimes do react to it just on a visceral level, like, oh my God, like, 
check out this movie, you guys. It's holy shit. Yeah. But it's really the stories behind who made these movies. You know, where were they made? Uh, what were what was the the political you know sociological so, sociopolitical climate at the time that was happening? Uh, where where and when these films were made? There's just there's so much incredible history, and very little of it has actually even been written about, which is what drew me to um, the history of pornography in the first place. Is uh, I was. Uh, especially in the movie zine world, um, the genre of horror uh, has been covered so exhaustively to the point where you can really name any horror movie to the you know even stuff that only was released you know in editions of a few hundred copies, and you'll be able to find like fan clubs for it. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's there's I mean, let's, let's just say there's no such thing as a, a biopic uh, convention. You know, like you know what I mean? It's a, the horror as as a genre has been so. Um, uh, Let's just say it's you know it's it's been given its due uh, by fandom. So um, I just felt like there was a lot of room for other genres, uh, uh, you know, especially genre films uh, and pornography uh, to be covered in you know in this type of way where you're uncovering the history and tracking down the people and doing interviews with them. Yeah. Uh, and I and a lot of times I, I feel like I'm covering ground that hasn't been covered yet. So that's uh, that's that's that, that's another thing that, that you know excites me about doing the work. Yeah. I think certainly the, re- the research element there, I think this is again the appeal of and why I personally write about current obscure cinema is the, it's the idea of going away and researching something and not just giving your opinion on something that's been discussed by like 500 other blocks. Like you wrote about mainstream cinema, say we took for example the new Batman versus Superman movie. If I put a review out, it's going to be one of thousands out there because everyone right. writes about mainstream cinema, but not everyone's going to be writing about Psycho Pike. They're not going to yeah. be writing about um, a Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive trilogy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's great the fact you can obviously get, get stuff out there and, you know, expose more people to this, which is what I love. And with your, obviously, your writing, I mean, you started off writing for Poop Shoot, uh, Rick Bradford's zine, and you, right from the start, I mean, you, you've you never really strayed away from your path of just doing sort of cult cinema, um, retro filth. I mean, you obviously, for there, just from the introduction you give at the first cinema sewer book you're obviously saying you covered the jackie chan mission uh, fantasy mission force which like my lucky stars it's probably the most wrongly advertised jackie chan movie out there <laughs> yeah um he, he's just a cameo really for him in there <laughs> yeah and uh one that i haven't seen but i love the description you give where you describe it as cinema rapist porno called water power water power yeah um he's, it's the story of the anima bandit <laughs> which was actually based on a true story of I have to wonder, a rapist was... who went around and, and gave women enemas and then left. Okay. Um, I mean, <laughs> I have to question, why do you like say, oh, this is a film about, about, um, about enema bandits. I mean, what is it that thinks that goes on in your mind that thinks that's the sort of movie I really have to go out and see. <laughs> Well, let's see. Uh, specifically about that movie, uh, <laughs> um, well, just the concept of it—a a guy who breaks into people's houses and, like, hey, you need an enema. Like, I don't. That just seemed hilarious to me. <laughs> but uh, I mean, and then plus, I wanted to see how are they going to depict that? Like, what's that? What's that going to be about? And then when I watched it, it turned out it was starring this actor named Jamie Gillis, who, went, who then went on to actually become my favorite um, male 
uh, pornographic actor of all time. Uh, yeah. We ended up hanging out in New York, and he he showed me around town. Uh, it was actually one of the greatest nights of my life. Uh, him going out drinking with Jamie Gillis, and uh, he's passed away now, so I'm, uh, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I mean, so I mean, that that movie introduced me to him, and and uh, I mean, what a, he's he's. He was he was a good enough actor that he he uh, he could have and he did actually work in in legitimate films outside of pornography. I always find it so difficult to follow male performance within the industry, mainly because they tend to find some new and unique way to screw up. Um, <laughs> I know that used to be like a big supporter of James Dean. Obviously, the you know he's the feminist, nice Jewish boy who happens to work in porn. Mm. Um, I think Brett Easton gave him the best writer when he said he was a nice Jewish boy with the even nicer cock. And then, of course, obviously, he's now recently been indicted in a bunch of um, a bunch of how can we really say? I don't want to say accusations. It's more counts of assault and rape, obviously led by his ex girlfriend Stoya and a number of other performers in the industry. So I find it uh, every time there's a new performer, male performer, come up and they have that sort of edge uh, to them. I always find it very hard to like think oh should i get behind this guy or not because it's going to disappoint me eventually so yeah well i mean i guess gillis and, and dean i guess have some correlation there because they they both worked in in and their performances in a, a lot of the time were a type of rough rough sex uh, um uh, gillis played a lot of rapists in his movies uh, so and when you, if you if you've watched any any amount of james dean's porn uh, he he's always you know often doing rough sex scenes so yeah. um yeah i mean I I have a uh, I've never had a problem disconnecting the art from the artist, uh, no matter what the art form is. I I think um, you have to judge uh, people um, by you know what they do as you know in their personal lives. Uh, I don't judge them by what they've done on on screen. You know at at the request of a director. So, so you, you view it as a disconnect between format and the person. Absolutely. Themselves. If 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 James Dean has been has been raping women for real, then that's you know that's not anything anybody would defend yeah. obviously no uh, so but uh, but if people are 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 um are are you know, saying he's guilty based on his his what he's done in movies that's ridiculous to me so um obviously Poochu goes under and you decide that you're gonna obviously set up your magazine you come up with cinema Sewer, which i believe is named by your wife is that correct yeah yeah um, I, again, this uh, just coming from your your own podcast. The fact that you tell this wonderful story, just you're in the back of the van. It's like, why don't you call it Cinema Sura? And it's like, who else has an origin story like that for their title name? Is <laughs> it seems that every aspect of your publishing career has some interesting story. Whether it's like obviously the aforementioned getting censored at conventions, or just how even you come up with the name, it's there's always seems to be this interesting history surrounding your work, but. I've always been bad at naming things, so I I've been doing mini comics and, and zines and things for yeah. quite a few years before Cinema Sewer. So I and and I consistently given them cruddy names that nobody could remember or are confused with other things. So when Rebecca came up with something, I was listening definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's all in the name, isn't? Also, make sure it fits on the iTunes search engine as we've learned with this podcast, which is now down <laughs> to just MBDS Showcase on uh, iTunes, but. <laughs> It's right. No one can find it, so we have to link it uh, everywhere. But um, obviously, what was it that sort of was it something in those sort of early reviews you were writing for Poop Shoot that sort of inspired you to just continue? Obviously, what you're now doing with Cinema Sewer, and obviously what you've branched out into with your collection of adult 
um, adult film posters, um, graphic films. So now you've got two volumes of the book out. You did volume one and recently did volume two, um, doing the history and just um, recon, just, uh, cleaning up the uh, the posters and removing all the damage and that. So that it makes an absolutely stunning coffee table book as well. And again, it's uh, I believe that's again through Fab Press. Is that one? It it is. Yeah, there's been two volumes done, both in soft cover and also a, a limited edition uh, done in in hardcover. Oh, nice. Uh, and I'm I'm really proud of those books. I think they're actually my favorite thing that I've done so far in in my my publishing career. Yeah. Um, they're each one comes with kind of an exhaustive overview uh, of that era of, of film, which is American adult movies made from 1970 to 1985. Uh, and it really, uh, it kind of gives, I, I wanted it to just be something that would really be interesting for no, both a novice and an, and an expert uh, on those films. Uh, and I, I think uh, I really succeeded. Uh, it's each, each poster uh, has a, a full page dedicated to it, and then there's a history of each film. Uh, if I couldn't track down the people who made the film, then I just reviewed the movie. Or I tried to find the, the, the creator of the poster art uh, and actually give um, props to the, to the poster artist for the very first time. I, I don't think anyone uh, in the history of these films has ever uh, tracked down the poster artists and, and actually uh, uh, given them any sort of due. Uh, in, in, in fact, uh, as I noted, uh, it's literally the one thing the one credit on uh, IMDb that's that's not credited. You can find the you can find the person that cleaned up the dog shit in the alleyway, you know, when they were <laughs> going to shoot. But you cannot find the credit for the person who did the poster art, yeah. um, and especially not for adult movies. So, so I mean, I have to obviously ask, what is the appeal of obviously covering trash cinema and classic porn? I mean, certainly with classic porn in in particular, you would think that it would be a sort of limited field of what you can actually write because the the sense that you'd just be repeating yourself but obviously as anyone who's seen your work we know that you obviously go into the history and you go a lot in more in depth than you would get from a more traditional review um so i mean what is the appeal especially with classic porn what would you say is the reason you choose to review that in particular uh well it's it's got a lot going for it at least in terms of if you compare it to say modern porn um there's there's a lot of things going on uh I find when I'm watching modern porn, it's fairly one-dimensional. It's basically designed to, you know, make you jerk off, and that's a pretty much it. There's not a lot of plot. There's not a lot of characterization. Uh, I don't see a lot of effort put into the music. Uh, and these are all things in the vintage porn um, that I do see a lot of effort being put into, even if even if they were unsuccessful uh, or or poor effort put into. Uh, there's there's um, I'm, I just I just notice it's a, it's a much more dynamic experience. Uh, sometimes you're you're checking out the fashions. Uh, like sometimes I, I'm not even paying attention to the sex. I'm just like, look at that amazing carpet. Like, whoa, look at that couch. Like, you know, it's just like there's there's all kinds of different things going on. Uh, and when the filmmakers, I mean, you got to keep in mind in the early '70s there weren't these rules yet in place. Um, for the for what we know now is that you know you don't you want to become a director you don't start making porn films because that'll ruin your career that that rule wasn't in place yet uh, so you had a lot of filmmakers young guys just coming out of film school uh, they were like well I, I can't get a job in Hollywood um, but I I can get a job making porn uh, and maybe I can parlay that into a, a career in film so they really were actual filmmakers they were and they had 
ambition uh, and dreams to make it uh, in in legitimate films. So what you ended up with was a lot was a lot of product uh, where it maybe it wasn't uh, done as skillfully uh, or had the budget of of Hollywood films. Uh, there was just purely to have that ambition there, which which I don't see anymore in in these movies. Yeah. Uh, it ma- it makes the, all the difference in the world. I have to. Certainly with, with Class of Putin, and you have to excuse my ignorance here because the few examples of classic pornography were sort of, that I have obviously seen have been the stuff that was sort of released in the, again in the early 2000s where we had that like mini boom in an interest in porn, probably sparked in part by uh, Boogie Nights. And we had films like Behind the Green Door, uh, Debbie Does Dallas, Deep Throat, getting these releases uh, on DVD. And they were put with the general film selection. They weren't put like in the smart section or anything like that. They were just put in the actual uh, proper proper film section, which again just baffled me and blew the mind that you were putting uh, hardcore pornography next to you know family fair. <laughs> um, but um, and at the same time, the Russ Meyer films were all locked up in. They were, again, Russ Meyer here in the UK was only sold in Ann Summers and like sex shops. And right. I would say they're certainly a lot less risque than what you're going to see in like Deep Throat or uh, Debbie Does Dallas. But when you watch these films, they actually have proper storylines. Yeah. Um, and this is something especially emphasizing if you've seen the uh, documentary uh, Deep Throat. Um, it, it really sort of emphasizes the fact where you have the ejaculate scene and you've got like <laughs> the rocket launching and all this symbolism <laughs> going on in the background, which you certainly <laughs> don't get in modern porn. No, no, they're not. They're not looking. They're not working with that sort of like. They're not, they're not trying to find similes and, and <laughs> things like that. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty much on. It's much more on the nose. Uh, the modern stuff. And is there any sort of actors from that sort of classic era that you sort of whose work you've tried to watch the whole catalogue of, or that you would be interested in sort of doing like a standalone piece on, sort of like a, a another book or something like that? Uh, yeah. I, I have a, a bit of a dream to do a book on this um, porn star named Renee Bond, uh, who passed away uh, in the uh, the early '90s. Uh, but she really was one of the very first um, porn stars, uh, and I she's not really much of a household name, but uh, she's always been my my personal favorite. Um, unfortunately, she she was one of the early girls to get breast augmentation. I'd never been a big fan of fake boobs, uh, so she, and plus they were they were quite bad because it was very early on in in the in the, the technology of making fake boobs. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I mean, it really gives you an idea how much I I love her uh, in terms of uh, her her performances and and uh, just who she was as a person. Uh, that I can look past something that I find so. Um, as such a turnoff, and still and still have her be my favorite porn star of all time. Yeah, there's there are some. Uh, some when when fake boobs start getting introduced into porn, there are some. Oh, it it, it was really sort of the balloon effect, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, hers. Yeah, the hers are kind of very like I don't know. They look hard. It looks. So she. I mean, luckily she did have an era where you know before that that you could watch where she, they're smaller and real. But yeah, it's just kind of this unfortunate thing uh, about porn. And and actually, really one of the reasons, another reason I like I like the early stuff so much because there was a, there was a lot less of that. Um, my my cutoff in terms of my interest in it really is around eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, and and that's when. Um, adult movies in America were they stopped being made for theaters. Uh, prior to that, they they were they were that's where they were the 
the, the filmmakers were making the assumption this is going to be seen in a theater. And and when that changed, when it started to be made for video, uh, that 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 really did change. Uh, um, they they stopped making films really. Uh, so and then also the you know the fake boob thing started becoming much more common. Um, and uh, you had less and less uh, um, plot and characterization and all, all these things that, like I said, can make the experience much more dynamic than just, uh, you know, the urge to jerk off. Mm. I think it was also around that sort of period that you started to see, like, the gonzo porn and really sort of what would now be classed as sort of the mom porn where it was sort of like the guy on the street and, you know, he meets the girl and that's that's how the scene plays. It plays out like this fancy that I could be that guy, you know, this could be real life rather than the... Oh, I've come to fix the TV with my special tools of <laughs> stick that you had in the seventies and whatnot. Uh, well, it's funny. The guy I mentioned earlier, Jamie Gillis, the star of Water Power, was actually the guy who invented Gonzo, and they uh, uh, P.T. Anderson actually spoofed that scene. Uh, you you see it in Boogie Nights where Burt Reynolds' character goes out in the limo and and he's got Roller Girl on the back. That's yeah. that's all spoofing the first Gonzo scene, which was done called uh, On the Prowl, uh, which which was a Jamie Gillis video. So he yeah he and he was he was there for the you know the earliest years of pornography and he was there to usher in the Gonzo period as well. So very a very important uh, performer in terms of this stuff. I have to say that is probably the one scene in Boogie Nights where I just felt very uncomfortable watching it. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I, I love that movie. To be honest, it took me three attempts to finish Boogie Nights. Um, the first first time I watched it, I went into it being misled that it was a comedy. Um, <laughs> that was kind of a mistake. Second time, I just couldn't get it. And then third time, I was like, you know, I'm going to watch this because I'm sick of people telling me that, you know, I have to watch Boogie Nights. And I just uh, couldn't get it. But yeah, it's it's not one of the movies I would, would rate. But certainly, you can obviously see the references there. And as you said, you... Uh, as you pointed out, the, where they start moving in to, away from the theatres and going into the video period, and everything sort of takes that downward turn. Uh, yeah, for this sort of family. It's a, it's a it's a good movie. I I I'm a huge fan of it. Um, uh, to the point where I I would rank it in my top five films from that decade. Oh, really? Um, yeah, but um, I do think some people do make the mistake of looking at it like like a history lesson. It's it's not it's not a history lesson. No. Um, he takes you know great creative. Uh, 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 strides in terms of uh, he's not trying to tell a true story with that film. So I, I do think that I see that mistake happen a lot. Um, there's a lot of uh, touchstones in it where he's he's referencing, like I said, you know, in that one scene with Gillis, and uh, he's referencing what this director or, or that that actor or whatever. Uh, or you know, here's something that happened to John Holmes. You know, we'll take it, we'll change it a little bit. But I yeah, I do. It bothers me sometimes when I see people thinking that 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 movie's a true story or something. <laughs> and it happens. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, he was really born out of just where Peter Anderson sort of grew up, really. I mean, he was right, right there down the Silicon Valley. So it was pretty much in every garage and basement that they were shooting porn at the sort of time he was sort of like getting into cinema and stuff. And that was kind of his love letter, I guess, to that sort of era. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, on the subject of Gonzo Cinema, I have to ask you your sort of feelings on the director, um, Steve Perry, also better known as Ben Dover. Hmm. I don't know. Are you familiar with his work at all? A little bit. Uh, he's like he's a little bit out of my uh, my wheelhouse because I, I I don't pay that much attention to uh, '90s porn uh, or or uh, uh, 2000s porn. So, I, again, he was just uh, one of those directors that he sort of very my formative years. I mean, obviously, my first experience with porn was through Ben Dover, and I mean, it was this sort of formative experience and the fact that there was guys doing his style before then, but when 
he obviously came on, it seemed like something very new and fresh. And now I'm finding that he's become a lot more sadistic. He's become very, his style has become a lot more what I would describe as like European, sort of the same as like uh, the Rocco uh, Animal Trainer sort of movies, where it's mm. a lot more aggressive and uh, spitting and foul mouthed and that. And for myself, it takes me out. I don't know about your sort of views on the more aggressive side of pornography, whether whether it's uh, something that you're finding is more on the increase or or, or, or what your feelings are on it? Um, well, I mean, I'm a bit of a dominant myself, so I have no problems with it sexually. It doesn't yeah. bother me at all. Um, I, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea and, you know, I don't, I don't, that's the thing with porn is that, you know, what's going to be interesting to one person is not going to be interesting at all to somebody else. Um, but, um, I, I, when, when I hear people talk about whether or not it's on the increase, um, I don't see that so much because the 70s, there was there was a whole subgenre of that. It was very popular. Uh, it's always kind of been there. In fact, you know, even before hardcore porn, it was there. It was uh, when you look back into the sexploitation films, they almost all have a, a rape scene. Uh, they almost all have a spanking scene or, a, you know, it's it's like a, a sex and violence seem to go together very naturally, uh, which I, I think is something that people who um, don't want censors to step in and, and fuck with porn don't usually want to admit. Um, but there is, there is something, I don't know, there's something, there's a strange correlation there. Uh, and I don't know if, you know, I mean, you could look into it and say, oh, it's, it's a, indicative of, of, of a, per, a per perversion in society that we would, we would want to mix those two things. Um, but I don't know, really. I mean, I, it's a, it's interesting. <laughs> you you can really break it apart in a, in a lot of in a lot of ways. I think, and, and there's a lot to be said about that 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 particular topic. Yeah, I just um, yeah, it certainly it was just as certainly something that was posed, uh, sort of like question posed. Really, there was a recent documentary uh, on Netflix, Hot Girls Wanted. Um, mm -hmm. I personally thought it was drag. It seemed to be certainly coming from the angle of porn shaming, but at the same time, I know there's a lot of feminine anti-pornography feminist groups um, mm -hmm. that were really behind the film and saying, you know, this is a, a true statement and that 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 violent porn is on the on the increase and at the same time, I mean, feminism and porn is probably one of those fascinating subjects. I'm not going to say that I'm any sort of knowledgeable sort on it, but there's certainly a great number of writings, both for and against pornography within uh, feminist literature. I know you yourself are a self-professed self, uh, feminist as well. Yeah. Um, obviously a, a pro porn feminist yeah. yes obviously <laughs> I hate it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it'd be kind of bad to be an anti-porn feminist and write in cinema too I would have thought but, <laughs> but I mean did you see Hot Girls Wanted or what was your uh, you know I kind of made it through about halfway through it and I had kind of a very similar reaction to you it just felt kind of like a propaganda piece to me yeah uh, I was it was too too swayed to the one side and I just felt like uh I felt like there was a lot of misinformation happening in it. Uh, I don't know. It, it it didn't really seem. I, it's funny because I have a lot of people quoting it back to me and stuff like, oh, oh I saw this in you know in this film, and I was just like, yeah, I don't know, really, if I follow a lot of what they were saying. I mean, I I like those types of documentaries, even when they are anti-porn uh, yeah. documentaries, and and yet I still didn't really like that one very much. Like my one of my favorite documentaries of all time is is vehemently anti-porn uh, in fact it's one of the most legendary anti-porn documentaries of all time it's called uh, not a love story uh and uh it, it was made by a, a canadian anti-porn feminist and uh um it's it was kind of legendary in in how uh, um it 
it uh, uh, made the connection between uh, you know saying all all sex is rape and it had all these like just crazy. <laughs> but to me, it's it's a this kind of a wonderful um, um, time capsule of that time. Like like they actually they have some of the 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 very there's very little footage out there of actually people going to Times Square. You know when it was kind of this porn mecca and going into the peep show booths and showing what was in the peep show booths. And they do all that in the uh, you know the the interests of making you realize how horrible porn is but you look at it now and it's just like wow i'm just fascinated by it <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that i'm uh, i'm not having the reaction they wanted me to have but <laughs> no but it's i think it's always great when you have these sort of time capsule movies i mean even things like when you look at birth of a nation what a great mm-hmm. time capsule that is and obviously the fact that it was based on the book the clansman and yeah, it's a, this... that's a similar that's a that's a similar thing actually in my <laughs> mind. Know, people were like, "Oh my god, this is like insanely racist," and I know we have heard calls for it to be banned, but at the same time, it's such an important. It should never be piece. chucked out. Yeah, you can't you can't chuck out history. It's it's too important. Mm. So I mean, what are your thoughts on obviously banning uh, film? I mean, obviously Disney now have said that Song of the South is never coming out of the vault. Um, whether this changes further down the line, and the film historians can obviously argue its piece as an important piece of film history it's it's ridiculous to me you can't you can't whitewash this stuff it doesn't you don't you don't you don't fix things by forgetting history yeah but in fact that's that's how we move on is is recognizing what happened in the past and and acknowledging it not pretending it didn't happen Mm. but i mean at the same time with the Disney corporation you have to also realize that they've only now just decided to realize after years of pushing the to girls especially the be a princess model that now the be a princess means that you know just be the best person you can be <laughs> they've been shoving that uh, message down uh, kids throats for the last 10 15 years it's like in kids like i'm starting to the point now where i'm watching these you know disney or, or pixar or dreamworks animated films and i'm actually starting to wonder is it possible is it actually possible to have a different message other than be yourself? I've actually gotten to the point where I'm not even sure if you can make a children's movie where that is not the main point. And watch watch kids kids movies from any other decade. It's like they have a myriad of different lessons and rules and things that they're trying to get across to kids. It's, and now it's just one. It's just it's like almost like a cookie cutter <laughs> thing. It's just like be yourself, be yourself. I think yeah, certainly. I think certainly if the one my one of my favorite things to do, especially when hanging out with my feminist friends, is just to throw the Disney princess grenade in there. <laughs> just see what happens. I think it's I'm up sure. there with uh, asking someone to tell you, asking them to uh, tell you their thoughts on um, uh, Fault in Their Stars. I know Kristen <laughs> over at uh, Jones in Classic Cinema, she can give you at least a 30 minute rant on everything that's wrong with that movie. <laughs> I've never seen it. Um, I was. I mean, just sort of while we're talking about censorship, though, I mean, do you find that if you censor something, that it instantly increases the status of the film? As I mean, you only have to look at like the video nasties list. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that those titles probably would have been forgotten had it not been for them being put on the list. Do you think that by these censorship groups banning or calling for films to be banned, that all they're actually doing is get more people to see them than probably would have? I I agree with that. Um, I, I, you see it happen over and over again throughout history. I, I think sometimes about this little film called, uh, uh, oh, what the fuck was it? It was that Rosie O'Donnell, Dan Aykroyd movie in the early nineties. I think it was called, uh, exit to Eden. And, 
it got banned in Saskatchewan here in Canada, and it and it made it made a movie that literally nobody I can barely remember it now, <laughs> but it wouldn't have been remembered by anybody. And suddenly it gave uh, like the whole world kind of turned around for five minutes there and was like, why did this movie get banned somewhere? It's like it's a Rosie O'Donnell comedy. Yeah, and just you know, and it's something that should never have been banned because it's there's nothing in it that's offensive enough, but. You know, it's just weird, man. It's just like, yeah, you can make stuff legendary. You can make things that, that don't deserve to be legendary, legendary. And I think another sort of thing, especially when things tend to get banned, that they, they, we end up with them being lost and that. And certainly, I know this is, again, just referring back to your podcast, I'm probably going to find myself constantly referring back to your show if you could just excuse my reference points here. But you obviously were talking with one of the uh, guys from Vinegar Syndrome about the preservation of classic pornography and I know he was like citing that alongside silent film that pornography in particular is like subject to the most film losses of any genre of film um, where do you see the importance really in the preservation of pornography um, well why do I think it's important or yeah, I mean why is it important that we obviously remember some of these less notable sort of skin flicks I mean you obviously have feel People like uh, something strange who obviously uh, rescue bat pussy. Oh, so uh, something weird. Yeah, they they uh, they obviously rescued that, and obviously Vinegar Syndrome have been put been putting out their own line of sort of classic pornography things like Sex World, uh, which I think would have probably been lost had they not obviously bothered to uh, preserve it and add it to their archives. So yeah, I mean it's you you got to grab this stuff while you can because once it's gone, it's gone forever. <laughs> I mean. And and a lot of these movies, there weren't that many prints made. Um, they they had small, they had you know low distribution in the first place. So if you can't find the original uh, negatives, you have to find a print. And uh, you know I really commend the work of guys like uh, Joe Rubin at Vinegar Syndrome because he's he's not only a guy working at a, at a DVD company and then putting out DVDs and Blu-rays of these films, but he's a, he's a film collector himself where he's actually scouring the world for, for the last remaining prints of these films and rescuing them you know, when needed and, and restoring them. So I have all the respect in the world for that guy and, and, um, for, and also for what Mike Vrainy did, uh, rest in peace, at, at uh, Something Weird, and what uh, his, his uh, widow, uh, Lisa Petrucci, uh, continues to do there. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, we we need these these film preservationists uh, that are that are willing to work uh, with the more uh, unseemly uh, uh, films and 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 give them the respect that that you know the rest of our you know people don't don't give because you know God bless them if they weren't doing it nobody would be. No, no. and is there any particular labels or distributors that you you tend to sort of follow at all? Uh, well, as as mentioned, Vinegar Syndrome and uh, they're kind of my favorite right now i actually just did the cover art for uh, a box set that they have coming out um uh which is a, a release called uh, all night at the pono i just actually talked about it on facebook this morning uh it's just been announced it's going to be out later this month uh in uh in april and um it's it's basically a 12 film box set uh, of early 70s uh adult films and uh yeah I love them. Uh I love what uh Shout Factory's been putting out. Um Arrow there in the UK. I've I've done work for them, done liner notes and and DVD covers for them as well. Um I've also got writing in their new book that's just come out. Um they've got a new hardcover book uh of uh that's a collection of their um 
that the art that they commissioned and also a lot of original writing. Uh, I did a history about the very early years of exploitation films, uh, American exploitation films. Uh, and I'm talking like really early years, like, uh, you know, 30s and uh, 40s and yeah, 20s, 30s, 40s, oh, around so, there. So. so back in the days of the Rockies and... The the pre the prehistory history, <laughs> a lot of which was stuff that really hasn't been written about very much. So again, that's why I, I was attracted to it. Um, I love um, Criterion, of course. Uh, they put out a lot of great stuff. Um, who else do I like? Um, not not a big fan of of Code Red, uh, even though I do like some of the movies they put out because the guy who runs it is a fucking idiot. <laughs> uh, um, but. Um, who else? Oh, um, uh, Synapse uh, and their adult imprint, uh, uh, Impulse. Uh, they have uh, really, really like what they've been doing. Um, they actually put out a series of peep show booth videos um, or movies that were from the 70s. I, I wrote the liner notes for um, the first 13 volumes of that series, uh, and it's now... Um, I think Serena, the porn star Serena, did the, the liner notes for the most recent uh, installment, and um, I'm going to go back to writing about those um, fairly soon. Uh, I had to take a break from it just because I was running out of stuff to save. Because <laughs> for uh, eight millimeter, it's it's really hard. To, it's a hard thing to research the history of those movies because with um, 16 mil and 35 mil, I can I can go through newspaper archives and find you know the release dates and uh, find you know where was this film playing, and you can you can track down all kinds of history. With eight millimeter, uh, it's so much harder because they they just played in peep show booths or they were ordered out of the back of uh, you know news, uh, magazine you know ads in the magazines so it's it's so much harder to track their history a lot of them don't have credits so it's like you're trying you have to you have to recognize the people that are in it uh just by their faces so you it's it gets it's much trickier um history to write about yeah it's i feel this is again this is a another missed opportunity that i wish someone to, to, took up really and i would love to see a book on the sort of golden age of stuntmen so like days are back in buster keaton and chaplin howard lloyd where these actors were essentially going off and if you want someone to throw themselves off a roof, it was a real roof that they would throw themselves off. <laughs> yeah. There was no special effects. There was no stuntman. It was basically, we had this idea, how about you go and do it? Yeah. Um, and the fact that heroin was being prescribed as a painkiller. <laughs> as uh, Fatty Arbuckle uh, was, was addled on heroin. He was taken for his chronic back pain from taking so many pratfalls. Right. Um, and I would love to have seen a, that someone just do like a, a historian to sit down with some of these guys who are at the scene and like, what's going through? What I mean, what compels someone to like convince someone to like fly a plane for a billboard or you know, <laughs> roll a roll a, a car without a roll cage and stuff? And you see some of this stuff, especially like in the early the early silent pictures and certainly with like the Howard Lloyd films like Safety Last and that. And you wonder how they did half of these things. It's amazing, yeah. I, yeah, I love those films. They're great. Um, I was watching a. Uh, a uh, a Buster Keaton one not too long ago where he was oh, what the hell was it called? And so where he's running down the hill and all those boulders are flying down after him, and he's trying to outrun the boulders and a little and, and you know they're they've made them out of plaster but they're still heavy as shit like enough to like knock him over while yeah. he's running and he's running and then when I say a hill I mean it's like it's like a ninety degree angle it's like he's like shooting down this hill like at top speed trying to avoid these things it's like man that guy could have been killed. <laughs> I'm trying. To, I believe it was Howard Lloyd that uh, also had the ongoing contest with uh, Johnny uh, Johnny Eck, the the Human Torso. 
Oh yeah. Um, the, he turns him first of all. He turns him to a um, a swimming race, and he lost that. And then they decided to have another race where they would have a flagpole contest, flagpole climbing contest, as you do. And he lost that <laughs> one as well. So. But, Again, Freaks is another book, another film I would love to see a great book. There's bits and pieces that have come out as sort of like the sort of various historians for, certainly for more of the performers. Um, it's been a case where you've had historians for just individual performers rather than the production as a whole. Um, and I think the book, The Horror Show, is probably the closest we're going to get to a sort of oral history of that film. But I think that would be another one I would love to see a book produced on because it's for myself, that's like the granddaddy of all exploitation cinema. I mean, correct me right. if I'm wrong. But well, that's uh, a, a yeah. fascinating thing about those that the early years of, of exploitation, and I, I talk about this in actually in that article for that Arrow book, um, is they they were working so far outside of the system in terms of like they they, call, they called them roadshow films because they they didn't play in regular theaters. Uh, they actually would uh, make them and then just. You know, show up in town with they would the filmmaker himself would actually travel around with the print, like almost like a like a traveling circus. Uh, he would you know set up uh, you know in a barn or or at a, you know at a local uh, you know wherever he could find a place to show the film, quickly show it and then get out of town before the law would show up and and shut him down because they were showing stuff that wasn't allowed at the time, right? It was so it was so uh, cutting edge, uh, or you know outside of the uh, the rules of what could be shown. Uh, or you know, in the case of like something like you know, freaks, it's just something that was just well, like uh, obscene or horrifying to people at the time. Uh, and or you know, in case in, in the case of the uh, this kind of sex exploitation type exploitation, uh, you know, they were showing stuff like breasts or butts when that was just not allowed in like the 1930s. No. <laughs> so it's like that was considered really racy. They had a thing called um, a hot reel, and um, the the um, the, the director, uh, who was you know working usually working as the projectionist, uh, could, would keep it actually in his pocket, and um, so when the, the law showed up, um, he could actually um, uh, unspool it, uh, the, the sexy scenes into his pocket, and then so then uh, like a different version of the film with the, without the sex films the scenes would play, and then he and then if they you know he could just keep that hidden someplace on his person, and they would you know turn the place upside down trying to find. <laughs> the smut and he would just have it you know hidden in his butt crack or something <laughs> fair enough I was have to ask where do you find these films these wonderful films that you uh, choose to write about I know you obviously like myself you came up for the era of tape trading um, which is something I kind of miss in some ways I kind of miss it and uh, just in the, the titles that would come from the excitement of hunting down titles the side of it I don't obviously miss is the fact that you would get like some sixth generation version of Cannibal Holocaust that just looks like shit. <laughs> um, you could just like vaguely make out things or it'd be like fuzzed up over like the good bits because the tape the like tape it would have been recorded from had been played that many times. <laughs> um, so I mean where do you obviously find your titles from? I, I don't get a, a great deal of joy out of out of downloading, so I don't actually do that. Um, so I still kind of um, I still use that sort of tape trader network actually um, to track down a lot of things. I have, I have a group of friends, uh, you know, that that uh, they that do download stuff, uh, and you know they keep an eye out for stuff that they they think I might be interested in. I do the same with them, uh, and we trade uh, movies on DVD R through the mail. 
Uh, and so I'm constantly getting packages of movies, uh, you know, almost always stuff that's never come out on DVD, never come out on Blu-ray. Uh, it's been transferred usually from from some, you know, obscure VHS tape. And um, so that's how I'm I'm personally getting a lot of stuff is just trading it through the mail with friends. Um, and it's I've found so much, so much good stuff just you know, having all these different eyes and ears out there, you know, keeping an eye out for stuff that they think I, I might be, I, I might find cool and might want to write about in CinemaSewer. So, uh, and then, you know, if not there, uh, I actually been watching a lot of stuff on YouTube lately where a lot, a lot of people have uploaded stuff that's hard to find. Uh, and so I just watch it streaming. I could just stream YouTube onto my TV and I just sit there on my couch and watch YouTube stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing some of the stuff that does does come through there. Um, frustratingly, a lot of the stuff that I want to watch has either been like snapped up and it's sort of like, yeah, you can pay us three pound to to view this or <laughs> yeah, and stuff like a lot of certain, some, like the Shaw Brothers films in particular. Um, there was a period where you could find pretty much all of them on on YouTube and watch them for free, but now obviously, um, I think it's Celestial Pictures of who now own the rights to. Yeah, they were all on there. Um, they they own the rights. I'm still at the moment. They, they they've made them pay now. I I didn't notice that. You can. That's, that's a bummer. In one way, it's a bummer. Um, but for the for like as folks over in the UK who never got Region Two releases for a lot of this stuff, mm. um, it's really great. The fact you can now download them off iTunes or I said you watch. Oh yeah, YouTube. that is cool. Um, at the same time, they're still missing a lot of titles. Um, on there and there's. Uh, such as the delinquent, which I'm still trying to get hold of a copy of. Um, I believe it's also I've, released as Hong Kong Street Gang. I've got that. Well, good for you. <laughs> I can't get hold of it. I didn't um, mean to think it sound that way. <laughs> so uh, it's yeah. great. I mean, that's the thing. It's a lot of the old, the sort of key uh, sort of works of movies and like things like King Boxer and uh, Ape. A diagram, uh, Pole Fighter. The sort of the key movies are all, all there, and some of the more obscure ones, such as like Behind the Yellow Line, you can now get on things like Netflix of all places. But um, I bought a lot of my celestial stuff actually when they first started putting them out on DVD. Um, uh, here in Vancouver, um, we have a, a really good Chinatown, and there were like at least three or four different um, Chinese DVD stores that would sell all region bootlegs of the 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 region uh, I think the original celestials were region th- 3 I think or something but they were they were region locked uh and so I I bought I bought hundreds of them like just for like you know 3 or 4 dollars each uh and they have packaging and everything so like, oh, even nicer then so. yeah they 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 look just like the uh the actual releases but they were just these chinese bootlegs and of course they all come with like english subtitles so it's like yeah I was supporting bootleggers. I mean, this is a controversial opinion, but do you feel that in some way the bootleggers and the tape trading community are playing their part in terms of helping these films stay preserved? Well, I am a bit conflicted on it because on the one hand, I don't, I don't like it when they bootleg already existing DVDs and, and, and Blu-rays. Yeah. Then you're just taking... Uh, money out of conflicting myself because i just said i bought all those discs <laughs> but, but but uh i guess we all make exceptions uh but uh yeah so i mean that, that's that's not a great thing because you know these these small companies you know they they need to uh it's you know the very few sales that they get they absolutely need 
Uh, on the other hand, uh, I'm all for um, people sharing stuff that's not a- commercially available because yeah. then you know how else are, are people going to see it? It's it's uh, it's important. If if I didn't have these bootlegger, bootleggers uh, making this stuff available back in the day, I I don't even know if cinemas would, would exist because there were no uh, companies that had any, any interest in supporting uh, you know my tastes. So I wouldn't have seen the movies. It's, it's more. I should also distress that it's more the the titles which aren't being put out there by companies, not just like the guy who's there, obviously bootlegging the Marvel movies or whatever. I'm not supporting him, but no, the guy, no. The guy who's like making sure that I can obviously see like obscure kung, kung fu movies uh, that I wouldn't obviously otherwise get to see. You know, he's the guy I support. So. But I mean, in the case of me supporting uh, the, the Chinese bootleggers, I I didn't have access to those those. Uh, the celestial releases—they weren't commercially available in Canada, so that's why I got them. If if I could have bought the le- le- legitimate versions, I would have. Yeah, I know I had to import like at least half of the Godzilla movies because they're only Region One releases. So we had like the original sort of series, and then it got up to—I believe it was uh, Godzilla, uh, Godzilla versus Mothra, so mm-hmm. the. Um, late 90s ones after uh, the wonderful uh, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah and then they stopped releasing them over here oh, so man. we had all, have all these little key titles and then I had to basically report like Godzilla vs. Destroyer vs. Violante and like, those last movies all the way up to Final Wars uh, those are all the best ones, ones though those 90s ones <laughs> oh really oh totally totally that's just my favorite era of Godzilla because I love like love I mean, Destroyer Monsters is the one I like say is like the best Godzilla movie of all time. We ignore the original Godzilla because that's in a league of its own. It's like comparing any animated movie to Akira. It's, it's just <laughs> not going to work. You know, it's it's in its own place. Um, no, I I shit on the '90s constantly, constantly. Either it's for me, it's the worst decade for everything. And yet, one of the very few exceptions to that for that is for me is are is, is Godzilla movies. I, I think that's the best era of, mm. of Godzilla. Because, I mean, at the same time, you also in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands, you've got Gamera. Again, mm-hmm. they tried to revamp Gamera and bring out a new trilogy. I mean, Gamera is an interesting one because obviously he's sold as being the same as Godzilla, but he has violence. Um, he has collateral damage, especially in the the later ones, to an extreme, you see people like being blown up by stray fireballs. <laughs> um, and this is the monster described as the friend to old children. <laughs> so he's, he's conflicted. Yeah. He's a giant space turtle that breathes fire. What's not to like, people? <laughs> you're going to be conflicted when you're a giant space turtle. Yeah. But I've... I'm really kind of defensive, and this is something I really, really hate, is that when you have critics out there, and they basically just hate for the sake, sake of hating, and they're just like crap over like the 70s because of the movies and say, oh, this is really cheesy, and like this doesn't make any sense and stuff, and it's like, but that's the charm of these movies. I mean, <laughs> Don't do get you... me wrong, I like, I like the, I'm a big Godzilla fan, I love, I love the old ones too, but yeah. So no, it's 90s. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shit on the old ones. No. I, I, I love them, they're great. I would say that Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah has one of the best... It has two of the best scenes in, in the whole of the Godzilla franchise. The first being when the American Navy blow up the dino version of Godzilla and they say, Take that, you dino! <laughs> and the second one being when we have the, 
the Japanese generals um, in modern day, and him and Godzilla have this like moment where they seem to recognize each other, and then he gets blown up. I don't think there's ever been a moment as great as that. <laughs> but I mean, are there any sort of genres or directors that you, if you see that see the like a new title being out offer for them, that you sort of have to hunt them down? Mm. Well, my favorite modern directors, uh, well, P.T. Anderson is actually one of them. Uh, I love all of his movies. Uh, speaking of Boogie Nights, uh, but yeah, and for any time he puts something out, I'm I'm watching it. Uh, same thing with the Coen Brothers. I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. Um, anything Studio uh, Ghibli, uh, Miyazaki, and any of that stuff, I love all that stuff. Um, who else do I like in terms of like I have to, I have to run out and see their movie when a new I mean, one comes it out? It doesn't have to be Mondrights. I mean, you can say say classic and cool directors as well so oh well, i thought you just meant in terms of like something new coming out oh i mean just um just just generally i know for myself if i see something by brian chenchard smith i think since we get getting into my exploitation by if i see anything he's made so, so things like turkey shoot i just have to like go out and see and i mean he gave australia it's only kung fu movie the man from hong kong sure yeah with jimmy you put that on the mixtape as well in your final show, and I was oh, not, <laughs> the, the musical selections for your podcast are phenomenal. You cannot jackhammer the smile off my face when I heard you play "Running in the City" by Space, <laughs> and I'm thinking there's probably you're probably the only other person who knows that record. That's uh, funny. Deliverance is. That's exactly why why I did it was yeah. I knew there'd be you know a handful of people out there. With each one of those those selections, is like this is probably only going to make sense to a few people, but those few people are going to be so jazzed. Mm. I would <laughs> just in a little diversion. I'm just going to say to everyone now: if you don't own a copy of Space's Deliverance, like go out and buy it now. It's like the the grant the like Sparks and like Pet Shop Boys and New Order in that these guys and Kraftwerk especially these guys are like the granddaddies of techno music, modern electro music. <laughs> would not exist without these guys and you hear what they're doing with like tapes and basic yeah. computers and it is phenomenal yeah. yeah um but no back to your directors before i go <laughs> my french techno um yeah i mean uh, uh well i mean we mentioned Russ meyer earlier i'm i'm always fascinated to remember a lot of these directors though i've seen all their movies like ages ago so it's not like i'm tracking down new ones that often no um yeah uh Oh man, you know, yeah, you, Brian Trenchard Smith's a great one because I mean I love almost everything of his that I've seen. Uh, like, have you ever seen uh, Stunt Rock? Is so good. Uh, I I'm trying to remember which is Stunt Rock. Is that the one with the Wizard Rock Band? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's it it mixes heavy metal, wizardry, and stunts. <laughs> Those three things you always wanted to see mixed together <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> and i think there's this moment in the uh the, the great exploitation documentary uh, not quite hollywood where they like talk about when these movies i know this is so true for myself that you'd watch these movies and it was only when they started speaking that you realized australian but at the same time it paints this completely false idea of what australia is like that there's this pack of roving bullies like in muscle cars that they could never afford. So true. I saw Trenchard Smith's uh, uh, Dead End Drive-In, really, uh, quite young. 
like when it first came out on VHS, and and it gave me a very different idea mm. of what uh, exactly that. I, I had this really strange idea of what Australia was. Yeah, that's supposed to be like a post-apocalyptic film, and I <laughs> I thought, oh, I guess that's just what it's like there. <laughs> Uh, for myself, I think it was watching the first two Mad Max movies, which corrupted it. And yeah, that that was what sparked my interest in sort of just exploitation. I was watching these movies, not even realizing it was like exploitation. It was things so I'd watch things like Razorback. I'd like watch things like uh, the is it Long Weekend or Last Weekend, um, with weekend. the yuppies getting attacked by nature. Yeah, it's great. Love that um, movie. Which has got a really awful remake with. Uh, Jim Caviezel. Oh yeah, I heard they remade that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was one of those bizarre remakes. I mean, they remade Sisters recently as well, <laughs> which I'm thinking, as we dis- we discussed in an earlier episode of this podcast, Sisters is one of those movies that just needs to be left alone. It's too wonderful. Of the of the modern era of remakes, which are the ones that you actually like? Um, I'm. D- I know there are ones out there which I've really enjoyed, and I'm trying and struggling now. Because it's easy, it's easy to remember all the ones that were shitty, because there were so many of them. Yeah. Um, I mean... One I, I actually like a lot. There's a couple of them I like a lot. I like the, the Last House on the Left remake, and that didn't get too much love. A lot of people hated that when it came out. But I, I think it's actually, and you know, don't throw fruit, but I think it's actually better than the original movie. I have a trouble getting on with the original movie, and that's why I never watched the remake. And maybe you'd like it then, because possibly it, it's a lot of the problems of the first film that are not repeated. So, like the weird comic relief scenes, yeah. <laughs> which I thought were stupid as hell. Oh, again, this was the problem I had with the original. It has all this wonderful tension built up and built up. Yeah, and then we have the chicken scene. It's like it's like uh, Craven, he's just like releasing the steam valve and it's all like deflated from there on. Yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. But that great, that it has that incredible first scene, which is one of the most famous and, and rightly so, uh, you know, when she's, was a, she's attacked by the gang and uh, killed in, in the swamp. And it's just one of the, one of the most affecting scenes, but really the film after that, uh, maybe with the exception of the <laughs> crazy chainsaw duel, uh, <laughs> it's really flat. It's really, uh, there's not a lot, to recommend about it i think really those two scenes in that film are all people remember and then when they think of how fantastic that movie is yeah. i think for myself with remakes um again it's very very limited i mean obviously the most obvious one which comes to mind would be like the thing um the original is still great at that one as well uh the fly now we uh, i guess there's been three things now so you'd have to actually have to say which remake the john Carpenter's remake yeah, that, um, that's my favorite horror film of all time. Of course, I, still, but they, they, I didn't. I didn't actually bother to see the 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 new the new remake because it just the screen grabs and stuff I saw looked so terrible. Okay, because that was a, a pre the prequel to the Carpenter one, wasn't it? So, oh yeah, I guess it was a prequel, wasn't it? Um, I, it's it's actually enjoyable, and hmm. it, it's nice the fact that they do lots of little nods. The CGI to... looked awful though, from what I saw. Was it really as bad as it looked? Um. Well, this is the thing. I take all CGI's just looking awful for the most part, unless it's like, <laughs> unless it's an Asian cinema. Like you look at something like Kashen, and the yeah. CGI looks wonderful in that. It's bonkers, but it looks wonderful. <laughs> and I don't know what it is about Asian cinema where they can do CGI that we can't. Hmm. And a lot of the time, they're not spending more money than we are on these films. But well, it's no, a, it's like a tool, right? It's 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 only as yeah. good as the person using it. So I, I think that's should, the answer. CGI should only really be used where practical effects can't 
And I think that's what's so great about Carpenter's The Thing, in that here we have really essentially the last movie made completely with practical effects. I mean, for myself, it's the scariest movie ever made. Yeah, I have it, it on DVD. It's still in the shrink wrap because I know what's on that disc. <laughs> I'm not ready to deal with that quite yet. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I love the thing. I love the Fly remake. Um, the Blob uh, 1988 remake is. Yeah, but you're talking about the 80s oh, remakes. I'm talking about what are the modern era? Oh, the modern I, I say ones. modern okay. era. I mean, like like this modern like last spate of remakes we've been getting in the last 15 years. Um. Because the 80s ones, obviously, are awesome. Yeah. The Fly, the Blob, those are all great. Okay. Um, I want to say Hills of Eyes. Oh, okay. By Alexander Edger, who, for myself, is... If you're going to remake something, he's the guy to get in. Um, I mean, what he brought to Piranha, I felt just really sort of took what was already there but laid in place by Dante and just, like, kicked it up several other notches. Oh, that's a good pick. Um, I really like Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. I feel that... Along, alongside Pair Pispiris, uh, Zack Snyder is probably one of the most underrated directors currently working out there. I, I like uh, that one too, actually. That was that was a good movie, and I and I'm not a fan, really a fan of the modern zombie movies, so that's a good um, pick. Yeah, I mean Romero himself said he liked the Dawn of the Dead remake, which I think is no higher praise than if the Godfather of the zombie movies giving you praise. It's it's a way better movie than Diary of the Dead. Uh, not seen Diary. I've not seen Diary, and I've not seen Survival. I stopped at Land. Yeah, good, good, good choice. <laughs> Probably the best. best Diary of the Dead was one. I my pick for one of the worst films of that year. Um, and and to, the I can't remember the title of the original, but I really like True Lies. There was a remake of a um, a French um, a French French drama that Cameron sort of he remade it, but he remade it in a way that's not comparable to the original. And hmm. um, the other one I would choose would be uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong, which is just a complete fanboy gasm. <laughs> the fact that it's three hours plus in length and goes longer with the director's cut, um, <laughs> and that you know, yeah, that movie gets shit on too much. I agree. The only part I took can't watch in the uh, King Kong remake is the bug pit. Oh, I have uh, a similar thing where I, if I watch it, I always cut, I always jump past it for a, a, one specific scene. So yours is the bug pit. Yeah. For me, it's the uh, the Central Park. Uh, uh, let's ice skate in the middle. Of- <laughs> it is a little random. I don't like that scene. It, it's it's flat. It's uh, I, it hits the wrong note. It happens right in the middle of that all the carnage in the city, which is great. And yeah, I just I always skip past. It. I'm like, oh, bad. Don't jump about this. I, 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 I feel you about the bug thing too, because for some reason I don't. I'm not a fan of the CGI in that scene. It's the penis worms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! I just. Oh. You don't like a good penis worm. I, I, I get up in like, the morning. If there, I don't have a penis worm. I don't. I can't start my day. <laughs> Good for you. Um, as for the Central Park scene, I, the only reason I can think he included it is that Jackson doubted that we're sort of feeling what we feel with like the original version of King Kong. Yeah. Uh, for, for the giant, the giant ape that. I, I know, nobody was trying to do. I just think he oversold it. It was a bit too schmaltzy at that point. Yeah, it was too way too schmaltzy. This. I feel that the the remake he did is one where there's so many great moments, such as when she's like doing the little chaplain bit. Yeah, I love that stuff, and yeah. just the whole bit with like the dinosaurs. It's it's an adventure movie. Yeah, it and is. And we don't have those sorts of movies made anymore. We just want to make action picks. We don't want this sort of like idea that you're going to go on an adventure with these characters and and that. Um, and I was glad that he kept it to the Empire State Building, unlike the '80s remake where. 
it's the Twin Towers because you know the uh, World Twins. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the seventies remake too, actually. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't I mind the fact that it's the World Twins. Week, so. <laughs> but uh, apart from the fact he's like crawling up in between the towers, I think there's not much to really take away from that. And obviously the uh, the re- the follow up that they gave, where uh, they gave him the artificial heart and oh, and, and the girlfriend. Yes. I saw I that not too long ago for the first time a couple years ago, and I, I was um, I was glad that I saw it, but man, uh, it was a slog. What was it? King Kong Lives? Yes, King Kong Lives. Was the, yeah. I, as I said, I've not seen it for... I think I saw it back when I was a kid. I, I watched that because... It's hard to get through, man. And I, and I like and I like the... Uh, the Dino De Laurentiis one. Mm. Yeah, it's, it was one of those formative uh, cinema years because I used to spend the summers with between going between my grandparents and my grandma who lives in Odom, she's a big horror fan. She doesn't like foul language. This is a bad thing. You can like <laughs> butcher and slaughter people on screen. She's not faced by violence, but what? bad language, it, it goes off. That's weird. <laughs> um, so, we, I mean, we watched, we watched King Kong Lives and we watched Critters the same afternoon. But the tape for uh, King Kong Lives, it had this horrible tracking along the bottom so we have this fuzzy line so she put like a piece of paper along the bottom of the tv so we didn't have to see this <laughs> fuzzy mess along the bottom but uh no she's she's responsible for so much of my own uh cult cinema re- obsessions really hmm. those uh, years of hanging around in video stores and having tapes rent for me that I shouldn't have been able to watch otherwise i guess we all have somebody like that in our past yeah uh Every every cult film fan does that. That Phil Felder, as yeah. Jim Waters used to call them, and I think because <laughs> I would I would watch films with with her. I'd watch films, especially with my father, and it was this idea that you watched sort of these horrific things, but because you're doing it as a family, you you would talk over it and stuff. And it wasn't this horrific child, like hood scarring memory that a lot of censors would say like exposing children to horror films can do, but. You look at what's on the news on the internet these days. I mean, this what you're going to see in a, a film is not going to be comparable, really. That's true. Yeah, I think the worst thing they're being exposed to is bad filmmaking by Eli Roth. So, <laughs> yeah. is there anyone in you would say is sort of like bringing down the genre these days? I know for myself, as I mentioned, Eli Roth is like a prime offender to myself. He can claim to be the horror version of Tarantino all he wants, but. Uh, He's just a pretender to the throne compared to... I somebody. actually had a conversation with Eli, Eli Roth before he ever directed a movie, before he was ever really a filmmaker. Yeah. So, which, so it was kind of funny when Cabin Fever came along, and I'm like, oh, that's that fucking guy that I was just talking to. How funny. Like, wow, good for him. He got a, he's got a film career. How funny. Because, uh, yeah, he was... Um, if you go back and look, he, he actually was the guy who ran the, the, the fan site... An early, early fan website for uh, Bloodsucking Freaks, the Joel M. Reed movie, and I and I loved that movie. And they uh, trauma when they put it out on DVD, they were like, "Oh, let's get the guy who runs the fan site to record a commentary." So that's like the earliest thing you can find for him is an, an audio commentary that he recorded for the trauma DVD of Bloodsucking Freaks. And so I, I liked his commentary so much. I was just like, wow, what a great, he did such a great job on that commentary. He's very funny. And, yeah. and uh, he comes up, he knows the fucking history inside and out of that movie. And he's, but he's quite young. I mean, he's in his, he's in his twenties. It's early on. 
And so I looked him up and, you know, I found his Bloodsucking Freaks fan site and I wrote him an email and I'm like, hey, I loved your commentary. And we ended up chatting back and forth and he was like, oh, yeah, you you live in Vancouver? And like, oh, I used to fuck a girl who was from Vancouver. And, Funny how uh, all these stories go with that. Used to fuck a girl, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> almost every one of his anecdotes. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he was, yeah, I mean, he was okay. But uh, so, I yeah, that was, sense. yeah, that's my, my, uh, my, <laughs> my run-in with Eli Roth before he was famous. I mean, I, I don't know if you've obviously you've not obviously met him since then. No, no, he's too famous now. <laughs> I, I just knew him when he was the Bloodsucking Freaks fan. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding that I'm gonna have to start hitting these directors before they start getting too big. I think I missed my window with like the Soska sisters, who. Yeah, <laughs> I know them too because they're local. I mean, that for myself. Though, if I was like write a, a list of like the new masters of horror, um, then you would be obviously looking at people like the Soska sisters, like Lucky McKee, uh, Alexandra AJ, and I think the Soska sisters, especially with American Mary, I think that was the film which really marked them out as as the talent to watch. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what they do next. I mean, I've enjoyed the films they've done with WWE, um, like See No Evil Two. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously a Vendetta, which was really great. Obviously, seeing a brutal prison movie again that didn't suck. So I'm very excited to see what <laughs> they do next. Um, I think yeah, if they yeah. if they stay true to themselves and don't like try and remake Cannibal Holocaust under a different name, then they should be fine. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it should be interesting. Cool. Um, obviously, with your your sort of uh, projects and that, I mean. What's the sort of future for for your for your work going forwards now? I mean, is there any sort of projects you want to sort of be trying to work towards getting out there, or is it just a case of working on building on what you've done already? I mean, you've just produced an plenty. I think would say the first adult coloring book. Yeah, uh, just it's called Sugar Spread, and I I noticed there was a lot of um, a lot of talk about adult like adult coloring books but none of them were actually adults so <laughs> i thought it'd be kind of fun to make a really really pornographic uh, coloring book that was uh so i did a lot of illustration i kind of started it and i uh, did a um I, I got this new studio space uh, that's like upstairs from my favorite comic store and my favorite art supply store it's a few blocks away from me f- from where i am now from my my apartment here in vancouver uh and um so it was that was the first thing I was working on in my new studio space. So, I, I that's what I think of when I when I think of that coloring book is is uh, is sitting there working drawing doing all these drawings and it's like I had to kind of change my drawing style a little bit because it's like when you're doing comic work it's it's a, there's a little bit of a different aesthetic but when you're actually creating work that's designed to be colored by somebody with markers or whatever uh, or you know pencil crayons or crayons it's it's like yeah you, you're, you're changing things up a little bit you're trying to so it's like i'm trying to draw things that would be fun to color you know what i mean mm. uh so it, that that was a, it was a really fun exercise i i recommend it to anybody who who does cartooning or or, or does drawing is, is try to create something like that is that that's designed to be interactive with the reader instead of just like a passive uh reading it's 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 a really neat it's a really fun way to make art actually and in my case, it's a really fun way to make porn. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get any sort of like feedback on where your who your t- your audience is for these things? Like who who's buying these adult coloring books? Are they like well, I I, mean, I thought I thought I knew, 
I mean, I always you always make assumptions, right? Like, oh, it's people. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. It, as a creator, you're always thinking, oh, it's just people like me. But uh, then you know, I constantly have my those assumptions get dashed, you know, all the time, constantly. Uh, you know, like a 17-year-old a girl will write to me and say, oh, I really liked that new, you know, that you know article you did about um, women in prison films. Or I don't know, it could be anything, like, uh, or like an 80-year-old guy. Like, I just, it's all over the place. Like, so I've just stopped assuming I know who's reading it or who's buying it because it's constant, it's always different groups. Uh, I, I would actually guess if I was making like, just from the interactions I have with people, I would guess about 40% of my readership are female. And I don't think a lot of people would, would, would assume that. No, I, I wouldn't personally assume. I mean, I would, but then again, I'm constantly surprised, um, at women, women, uh, women's attitude towards, uh, pornography and how they, they choose to view it. And, um, and obviously how they, they, they have that interaction level. I mean, again, this is going back to the sort of few feminist writers I do follow. And obviously there's people such as like um, Christine Makepeace, who's obviously been on the show. She does obviously the feminine critique and she has her own books out there. And, um, sadly, nothing on porn, because I think she'd be really great, fascinating person to write on the subject. But um, just obviously seeing how when she was like on the debatable podcast and how she obviously was explaining her interactions with pornography and stuff. So it's uh it's inter always interesting to obviously find that you have that sort of surprise audience out there and as you've obviously demonstrated the fact with your own material there that you've got this wide range of uh, people that you wouldn't realise. But do you find that that uh cult cinema's now being picked up too much by the hipster sort of crowd who don't get the idea of viewing bad cinema into sort of laugh at anything that's on the screen that can be that they seem to be bad i'm i'm always very hesitant to tell people how to what is the right and the wrong way to react to, to films so i'm very i'm very hesitant to call anybody a hipster or say like oh you just you know you just want to laugh at bad movies and i mean i get i get that that's a criticism and and you know when you go to a, a film and everybody's laughing at the wrong in the wrong parts but i'm just really really hesitant because i I just don't want to be that asshole that's like telling people the right way to like enjoy things because it's so easy to fall into that as soon as, as, as you're, uh, you know, I mean, who am I to fucking say, you know, <laughs> like I'm enjoying these things, you know, occasionally ironically and to, against some people that would, that would be, that's a, that's a, that's a fucking crime. You don't enjoy things ironically. Occasionally some things are funny, ironically, sorry, but they are. That's fine. And then I've been, the other sort of part of that question I would have to ask is, uh, what's your feelings on trader prices? I know that myself, the bane of my system, if something goes out of print for like a second, that it, that anyone who's got a copy suddenly jacks it up to about eighty quid over here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's not worth that. Uh, yeah, I I as I work in a my day job is I I work in a in a DVD uh, Blu-ray retail store, so I constantly have people every single day bring in used DVDs and Blu-rays to trade them into the store, and uh, we give store credit towards new or used stock. Uh, I work at a store called Videomatica, and I constantly it's a thing I have to deal with every single day where someone's like, oh, I saw that this is selling on Amazon. You know, somebody on Amazon selling it for a hundred dollars US. So like, well, how much will you give it to me in trade? And it's something like you said that went out of print <laughs> like last month. I'm just like, 
okay, well, there's what someone's selling it for and there's what it's actually selling for. And those are two different things. You, you, if you're confusing those two things, then you're treating Amazon like a, a price guide and it's not, it's not a price guide. Literally anybody can go up there and stick a value on something. It doesn't make it so. So it's it's a frustration for me because I have to I constantly have to tell people, and they they think I'm trying to rip them off or something like no I saw on Amazon it's worth a hundred dollars I'm like <laughs> I'm not trying to rip you off buddy I've got five more sitting under the counter I'm like it's the <laughs> <laughs> yes I think the, again this is the the worrying thing when you have uh, like Arrow released um, the Bouts Route Honor and Humanity box set. And they post on the like site. It's like limited to fifty thousand copies. And you're like, oh my god, I gotta buy, I gotta buy. It's like I've got all this other stuff to watch, but I have to buy this because I know it's gonna go out of print, and then it's gonna be, like be jacked to the price, same as like the uh, Bronx Warriors Steelbook Collection that was put out by Shameless Entertainment. Um, yeah. Again, I paid twenty pound for that. You look on Amazon or whatnot. It's going like one hundred and fifty quid. People want, and it's like this isn't even like a mint condition. This is like some copy that's been kicked around someone's apartment is like, oh yeah, this is an imprint, I'll just sell this for more money now. <laughs> yeah, I find like, for instance, if you want to use those those websites as a price guide, like for instance, go to eBay and look at the, the completed listings. Don't look at what people are actually selling it for. Look at what it's actually selling for. So if you click on the little thing that says completed listings, it actually shows you what the auctions ended at. Uh, for whatever search you've done, and that gives you a much more comprehensive idea of what the value, what 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 the market will bear for stuff. That's a little trick I've been using, and and it's much less than usually than what what you're seeing the, uh, uh, you know the 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 the, the, uh, the prices are, are listed at. Yeah, I mean, is this something that you would cover in cinema sewage? You think an expose on how we're being ripped off by traders? Um. <laughs> uh, e- Probably not so much. I I like um, I'll save that for for internet because uh, with the, with print, I, the thing I love about to have Cinema Sewer B is 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 sort of timeless. Uh, it's something you can pick up, you know, no matter if something's a, a new version of it has come out on DVD or Blu-ray or if it's been out of print for decades. Uh, I really like to focus on the, the film themselves and not so much on on uh, uh, things that are time sensitive like that because uh, I find it. Um, I want the books to still be interesting uh, and and uh, to be current uh, yeah. decades from now. So, um, and obviously, with you working in, I would say one of the few remaining video stores out there, uh, along with like the Scarecrow, which is on the bucket yeah. list of the places to get to eventually. We're the we're the last um, we're the last de- uh, retailer. There's there's still one other rental store here in town. Um, which is Black Dog Video, uh, but yeah, Videomatica, where we we you know, specialize in cult and world cinema and uh, classics and uh, Criterion's and just any sort of uh, we we have lots of Arrow stuff and so we yeah we just we specialize in in a lot of the kind of stuff that I write about in Cinema Source. So it's a uh, it's a it's a great place to work. I only make minimum wage there because you know it's a little tiny store and you know they can't uh, <laughs> it's 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 a tough market to make a go of it. But oh, definitely. I wouldn't I wouldn't rather work anywhere else. I love it. It's yeah. uh I I love talking about movies all day and I love. Uh, you know, recommending stuff when people I have, we have so many regulars that come in the store and I get to have that kind of like what's considered now an old school experience where people you know you get to recommend movies to people it's just not it's not the 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 interaction people have with films anymore that video store experience seems to be disappearing but we're keeping it alive as much as we can I for that I can only only salute you Robin it's it's uh, nice there are places out there that still 
still alive. I mean, all my video stores now, which I came up with, are all gone. Uh, like the video bug in San Austin in Cornwall, that's gone. I still have, I still keep all the video rental cards in my wallet. That's great. Still, like bizarre <laughs> mementos, like I've still got blockbuster cards and. But I changed wallets, but the cards are still mysteriously making over to the new wallet. So, but um, no, I, I miss, as you said, it's that interaction that you don't get really on the internet um, of going in and being recommended something or to discover something. I know when, like, if I went in like Gilbert's Video Emporium and I'd find like Baby Cart in Peril sort of yeah. place, and uh, if I went in the Video Bug, which back in the days of disability access not being a thing, they never got rid of any tapes they just put in more bookcases wow so basically you had to like slide along sideways along the, the aisles because they had that many bookcases in this small shop he never thought of expanding the shop <laughs> he just like put more bookcasings he never wanted to get rid of a tape and sadly these places are gone and i'm never there when they decide to get rid of their collections it's uh so it just horrifies me the amount of tapes and that that have probably now gone to the air uh, than ever so it's nice that Obviously, there's places like yourself and like the Scarecrow that are hanging in there. Um, and especially because with the internet being the snobbish place it is, I mean, do you have, obviously with your position obviously being a you noteworthy know, writer of cult cinema, do you find yourself still having to deal with those jackasses who think that it makes them more hip to just name like the most obscure and random-ass titles out there? <laughs> well, it's funny because Videomatic is the store has been there for over 30 years. And so people do have kind of funny, like they think I'm going to be really, they think I'm going to be the snobby one. So they'll come in, they'll almost try to like out snob me before I say anything. And so I feel I, they're almost like kind of defensive. Like they're like, oh, I better not mention a dumb movie because this guy's going to make fun of me. <laughs> but it's like, no, man, I'm like, I try to be as nice as I can. I mean, I, occasionally I might make fun of somebody, but. Uh, you know, only if they deserve it. <laughs> I'm about to say, but, I was so cautious when we sent when I sent the list over to you during our original sort of email. And I, 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 I did make fun of you a little you bit. You did. You're like, oh, someone's got a serious Michael Cera boner over there. <laughs> but it's it was in good fun. I wish you could have heard was. my voice because I wasn't I wasn't doing it maliciously. I was having a laugh with you. I was like, I was like, I was, like, I was going, oh my god. And then you like, then you sent me back this like really nice message. It's like, oh, I'm not trying to rake you over the coals or anything, man. It's like it's really great listening. You like naming all these like. And titles like uh, Decline in Western Civilization and stuff and I was like you know that's cool <laughs> I think this no. is the thing when you anyone who sort of have any sort of respect with uh, or what, whose work you follow certain like people like yourself and Kim Newman um, uh, Augusto Vigone who's obviously the big Keiju guy uh, over at Shout Factory and you, there's always this worry that you're going to come off and like make jackass yourself by submitting what you consider to be your list um, and how it's going to view to a fellow sort of fan in that. So. Well, film is such a personal thing. Like I'm, I, I try to be careful not to do that because it's like I have people. I, I know what it's like the other way. I'll be on the other side of it too. Uh, I mean, I have people come in and say things like, "Oh, you know, you haven't seen this," and they're like, "I thought you were a film expert." God, I can't believe you haven't seen. It. I'm like, I never fucking said I was a film expert. You said I was a film expert. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, so I know what it's like to be belittled for. I mean, we all get to this stuff in our own time. So it's like, who's to say, you know, that, that you know, I don't know. I, I just, I don't want it to be like that. I want film fandom to be uh, not a space where people are, you know, looked down upon or, or made fun of for that. Because that's just childish shit. You know what I mean? I've, I certainly don't miss the uh, the days when you're a novice, novice film, like, 
explorer, sort of, so to speak, where you'd ask someone to like, recommend you anime titles and like, oh yeah, check out Legends of the Overfiend. <laughs> or check out L.A. Blue Girl or Mad Bull or Violence Jack and you're like, but does anything by Go Nagi? And it's like, <laughs> Go Nagi, who's obviously a fan of Splatter movies and it certainly shows in his work. I mean, <laughs> and you see things like Legend of the Overfiend, especially this being like the early 90s when these films were coming over here through like Manga and Same and then they would have no reference point because no one was writing about anime. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, come over. And these were like films shown in like Japanese sex clubs and uh, like intent, like their way of getting around the sort of censorship laws of pornography. Because, you know, there's laws controlling what you can do with a penis, but there's nothing controlling what you can do with a tentacle. Right. <laughs> um, and you would see this over and it's like, wow, those guys are really fucked up over there. <laughs> I so, watched so much of that stuff back then. Oh, man. Um, and it was again when you had a lot of the uh, cult sort of Asian cinema come over and you would have like um, people like get into like Takashi Miike because we had like this wave of uh, new Asian cinema that came over we had like Battle Royale, Audition and Ring and they were launched by uh, Tartan's Asia Extreme label and then you'd obviously have the established Asian cinema fans and like people go to them and recommendation they like say oh go watch Guinea Pig series or um, these sort of like really disgusting movies like Evil Dead Trap and they're like oh my god so I do it's nice that there are people out there who aren't trying to trip up the the would-be film fan just for their own uh, their own ego so to speak well yeah that's just it because we we all we were all beginners at one point so it's just yeah it's just pointless to me to you know to be to be acting elitist it's like you know every, everybody's at a different uh, spot in their in, in in their knowledge and and there's and there's all kinds of stuff that I don't know anything about. And I would feel bad if somebody's making fun of me. So yeah. <laughs> it's just be, be empathetic is all I'm saying. Um, I mean, you know, when I was thinking like about working in the video store, back to that again, I was thinking like not only is it um, it's wonderful to be able to recommend movies, but I, I I get a lot out of it too. Actually, just being to having my customers recommending stuff to me. Like I I've I've learned so much about movies just from from like just the other day somebody recommended uh uh the work of Frank Tashlin uh who was a, a director of the old Looney Tunes cartoons and he was one of the very few guys that made the the jump over from old you know Looney Tunes cartoons into into live action. And uh, just on an offhanded comment, like somebody, you know, customer in the store said, you know, oh, I love these movies. And I was like, oh, really? And I kind of looked up some stuff. And and then like three weeks later, I've been just completely, you know, at the end of an obsession where I've watched 20 or 30 of this guy's movies. So it's like I love that kind of stuff. That's And that's just like a video store experience, like just chatting about movies with people. So, I mean, with your so cinema viewing experience, then you prefer not to just keep yourself to any particular one genre. You just sort of like prefer the sort of smorgasbord approach and just like uh, sample bits and pieces from everywhere there. Exactly. Well, in terms of my writing um, and cinema sewer, it's like my my focus is very specific, but in terms of my, my actual, the stuff that I'm watching, like for instance, in the last couple of years, all I've been watching, almost all, all of what I've been watching is, is classic films, uh, a lot of 50s musicals, none of which would be good to write about in cinema sewer because they're not particularly sleazy all at all so but i've been like watching yeah lots of doris day and uh so yeah a lot i mean cinema that's the great thing about cinema i don't i don't you don't have to restrict yourself you can watch whatever you want whatever and and i i find sometimes genre film fans especially horror film fans 
they get too wrapped up in like I, you know, in their identity as a film fan. This is what I am an expert in. This is how I identify. It's like, no, man. It's like it's all good. There's there's stuff to like about almost every genre, and there's stuff to shit on in every genre. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. French New Wave being one. Yeah, I didn't. You can. I understand its importance in in filmmaking circles, but a lot of it, and especially with the politics, when you like watch things like Sympathy for the Devil and um, and films like that, and Weekend especially, like I just do not get the appeal. But it's really bizarre because I love the Cinema to Look movement, which it followed, which right. obviously gave us films like Diva and people like Luc Besson, um, who was doing things like The Big Blue and Akita and uh, Subway and stuff, and without the French New Wave, we obviously couldn't have the second wave of uh, French directors there. That exactly, very really influential. Sort of, uh, got me excited in that, but are you on Letterboxd at all? Or? No, I'm not. You're one of the few people out there resisting the, uh, the call of it. Cause I would, <laughs> just from obviously hearing the films you're discussing and obviously from what you're watching, I just think it would be a fascinating list to see what you watch all the time to see what, <laughs> see what you can take away from it. But Yeah. Well... Yeah, with like Tashlin, like he he worked a lot of his movies were with Jerry Lewis, who's man, talk about a guy who's not very respected, but who but who did a lot of really interesting work. Yeah. I think Jerry Lewis is sort of now getting sort of respect, and I think it's finally happening. Yeah, I think it's mainly because we're coming to the end of his self-imposed ban for uh, the Day the Clown Cried. Yeah, he's back on people's lips again, um, specifically because of that. Yeah, people are like it's coming up. <laughs> and Lewis hasn't said that he's going to extend, extend it at all. Because he set this, very much, uh, set, set this date in mind which it could be released from his vault. I mean, he's outspoken and said that it was a mistake to make it. And I think he realized that when they're on the set of the film. But it's re- remained this sort of secret handshake amongst uh, Kurt Simago. It's of mm-hmm. heard about the day the clown cried. Um, and obviously there's been films which have done that sort of Twist is sort of found vibe in a similar uh, vein, such as like The Last Circus. But Life is Beautiful. Yes. Life is Beautiful is. I thought when Life is Beautiful won all those critical accolades, maybe that Lewis would look at that and go, oh, okay, well, why am I so. Why am I wringing my hands about my stupid fucking movie? Look at this guy. Like, it's basically the same same concept. Yeah, I was probably a bit, you know, more classless with it, but obviously it's something that people can get their can wrap their head around, and yeah. it's not going to destroy my legacy. But he, he's he's a you know he internalizes. <laughs> mm, I think I think the, 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 again with Lewis because I think he's accepted his place as being this sort of cult figure. Yeah, and he's not really put himself out there to sort of promote himself. He sort of like knows his fan base, and he's happy to support said fan base and. And do right. appearances and be, 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 you know, generally a great guy in that. But at the same time, you just, if you, when you see it mentioned in like when he's doing press conferences and you just see his, his face and his mood change. And then he'll go back to being normal. But while on the subject of the movie, he's just doesn't want anything to do with it. And yeah, th- there's, there's been little snippets released. There's been like the, the screenplays out there and, and sort of like the public domain and that. But uh, I don't know. I because I do. I don't know if it's really in a completed form or if it's in sort of partial print or, or what sort of state it's at. But I mean, is that something you would you would watch if you got at, when they finally do release it from the vault? Yeah, of course. I mean, I've been watching all of his other movies, so why not? Completest. <laughs> I just watched this one called The Ladies Man, uh, which was fascinating. It's like one of the uh, 
And it's not a, it's fun, weird because I don't, I'm not even really that big of a Jerry Lewis fan in terms yeah. of his comedy. Uh, it's not a funny movie, even though it's trying to be funny all the way through. But it's absolutely unmissable. Like you have to see it just in terms of, uh, just as a historical document. It's so fucking interesting. Like it's, it, to this day, it has one of the largest sets ever made. Like it was actually two. But in terms of being like on a on a soundstage, he actually had to attach two sound stages together so he could build this set. And what it is is it's a giant human sized dollhouse. It all takes place in like a like a like a women's boarding house. So like you have all these beautiful women around and Jerry Lewis and he's like the you know he's the the fix it handyman guy. So each room has this gorgeous woman living in it. And there's like 17 rooms and four floors and this giant living room and this big staircase. But it's all done. Like you know how when you cut a, a a dollhouse in half and you pull it apart, it's and you know you can so you can put the dolls in the house. It's like that. It's been it's like a dollhouse, but that's been opened up. And then, he, but he shoots it that way, so he's not trying to hide the fact that it's a dollhouse. He'll 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 the camera will move around from floor to floor, from room to room. It'll pull back so you can see all the floors. So it's almost like that that massive attack video from back in the day where yeah, it was uh, moving from room to room. Like that movie, that video is so inspired by this movie. Uh, and it's just it's so fascinating just in terms of like looking at the set decoration and of course and it's one of these fifties Technicolor movies so it's just that those bright garish colors and uh, I recommend to people just check it out just to see the sets and that's just one film of of many like I don't know I mean certainly the the, the shooting stuff reminds me of again that shot in uh, the Life Aquatic by Steve Zissou exactly that was another movie. one totally inspired by this movie uh, but they obviously had the cutaway from the boat and again that's one of my one of my favorite scenes in that that film that's it's really that. cool yeah that and do the interns get guns <laughs> yeah if you like that scene i'd say check out this movie it's called the ladies man um yeah i mean it's in, with life aquatic i didn't get it until i started watching the uh jack Cousteau movies yeah because <laughs> um, my my dad was a a big uh, fan of like uh, underwater documentaries, and I showed him like the best on Atlantis and um, these sort of movies. And we we started watching the uh, the Jack Cousteau movies, and the fact that they're in the red beanies, and I was like, I finally get what Wes Anderson was aiming for. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's totally a send up of that stuff. That's cool. Um, I, yeah, I love uh, I love that guy's movies for the most part. Uh, like I loved um, Grand Budapest Budapest Hotel was really good. I guess that's another director whose stuff I look out for all the time. Yeah, I think Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm, I'm still getting my head around it. I don't enjoy it as much as other movies, and I think it's going to be like well, turn a balance where it's going to take some time to uh, to get it. I think Bottle Rocket's the only one that's left me cold. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, but I mean, I love because um, uh, uh, I for years I never got the appeal of Anderson and. I went back and started with Rushmore and worked my way forward, and I, it was like, like when you watch Lauren Hardy movies, and then you suddenly get it, you get the joke. Yeah, it's all about the final payoff, and it's like this <laughs> thing has, this switch has hit that one, and this one, and you know it's all about that final, final scene, and that's the payoff. The big. Uh, if, I, if I was going to rank them, I think I'd say uh, Rushmore is still my favorite, and then yeah. probably Royal Tenenbaums tied with Life Aquatic, and then. Uh, and then I'd say Grand Budapest Hotel. Because I would put myself, uh, Rushmore's obviously, I would put as the first. I mean, it's the most successful and it's just wonderful film. Um, then for second, I would be tied between Royal Tannerbaums, uh, mainly because I love the uh, character of Margot, who I would love to <laughs> yeah. see a spin off. Yeah, that'd be great. 
Um, especially because you have all these hints of her, her life when she basically went off in her wilderness years. Um, and I tie it with Moonrise Kingdom. I like Moonrise Kingdom, yeah. Um, the beach sequence is a little awkward, but generally <laughs> it's, it's very pretty to look at. And I like what what each of the castle brought to it. Edward Norton especially, I would love to see him do more with uh, Wes Anderson. <laughs> he brings out a lovely awkward side in him, which we don't get to see much. So, Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, obviously, one sort of final... Uh, final thing really before we wrap up this episode um, and that's the podcast obviously the Cinema Sewer podcast you do with uh, Tim Hulis, sir? Uh, Tim Hulsizer. Hulsizer sorry I can't even read my own handwriting here um, <laughs> you did a, a season one I believe just it was a six episode run um, again each episode you do a different theme be it women in prison, bike movies uh, you did one just on music which you mentioned already which is absolutely fantastic I mean is there any plans in the sort of near future to do season two, or is it something that's on on the drawing board to do at some point? It's it's a bit on hold at the, at this moment, just because uh, um, I've been I've been we've both been busy, uh, so lining up our schedules to to do a new episode. Yeah. Um, but uh, we both really enjoy doing it. Um, uh, I find we we it it's a little harder because we, we do put quite a bit of planning into what we're going to talk about. And, and so it's not just a matter of just turning on the mic and just chatting like we, like we did today. So, uh, I, I sometimes kind of wish it was, cause it'd be so much easier to make an episode, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, we do, we do a lot of planning. And so I, 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 it makes it tough to actually get time to do an episode, uh, in terms of just, you know, turning on the mic and going, I've been doing that more with, uh, my YouTube series, uh, which is uh, I've been making these YouTube videos, which are just me in my in my uh, studio space at night. Usually when I'm working there, and uh, just kind of showing people what I'm working on and just chatting about different uh, different aspects of the creative process. So that's that's uh, that's called uh, Inside the Bougie Studio, and I started another one too, which is uh, I found this puppet when I was out the other day, and and I kind of got obsessed with this puppet. Um, and buying clothes for him, and uh, uh, it's really weird to be in a, like a children's clothing store, and like holding your as if it's a person and trying clothes onto it. <laughs> Just like holding them up on the rack. Next yeah, holding them up and like, and then talking with your hand and like, yeah, I like this shirt, and like, and, and talking to your hand. Just getting all the reactions from like the mothers buying clothes for their babies, and it's that's really something I think everybody should take part in. Is is buying clothes for their arm like that because it's just it's a whole different experience you have when you're clothes shopping okay um <laughs> i'm kind of half serious uh so but i've been <laughs> I have but no i'm also had to part... follow this <laughs> <laughs> but uh so i've got the yeah this new youtube series where this puppet is reviewing stuff uh and i don't know if it's funny i don't know if it's uh if <laughs> I just I've always been kind of like obsessed with puppetry and even though I've never really done much of it so it's just me kind of trying out a new thing really yeah that's I mean the show itself is is I really enjoyed it um, I love the <laughs> fact that you you have yourself and a theme and often it's in character <laughs> the fact that you did a whole section where you and Tim are in prison for your prison <laughs> season and I think that you spend 10 minutes talking about drinking your own wee and stuff. So it's got that very much <laughs> cinema sewer vibe to it. Yeah, we um, like to do stuff in character. And like that biker episode we did as we did as bikers. We reviewed about biker movies. Oh, yes. It was, you did, 
again, it was this whole... You just completely in character the whole way through. <laughs> um, which is... It, it's, and it, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but you just gotta, you gotta be willing to go for it, I guess, yeah. is what... Yeah. I think the Western one was probably my favorite, the fact you have all this build-up, and then you manage, I think, one howdy, and then you drop the carriage <laughs> completely. That was that was maybe less successful. <laughs> <laughs> not the best one, but... No, it's still in the, in the format. I mean, be it the first episode where it's just yourself and Tim, and you're just chatting back and forth, and you have musical interludes there, which sort of fade in between and out, or the main episodes where obviously you have the character piece and then you have these aside parts where either yourself or Tim uh, talk about film. I mean, you talk about uh, Children of Times Square. Uh, you talked about the aforementioned delinquent or uh, street gangs of Hong Kong. Right. Um, and I know Tim talks about the French version of uh, Home Alone, which... Oh, yeah, that's right. It's just, again, it's, it sparked a whole new obsession trying to find that tape and uh, <laughs> that's just not happening. So... I think I need to get hold of him and see if he's got a copy he can lend me something because, you know, alternate Christmas is coming up and, you know, great to have another title to, to watch. It's true, cheap. it's true. When you, Thanks for reminding me, though. We, we we really need to do more episodes of the podcast because I, I am very fond of doing it. It's just finding time to do it. It's it's only I enjoyed it. I, if oh, there's any you. sort of recommendation to the people out there to, to go and listen to it, I find it very enjoyable. And certainly if you're a fan of cinema, so I would say, it doesn't live up to obviously what you promise of being the audio version of the magazine. So, um, <laughs> I really like I like working a lot with Tim because he's um, he's always game. Like he'll he'll he's really fun to kind of improv stuff with because he'll he'll always go along with everything, and it's nice having somebody like that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great as well the fact that you with this sort of friendship you obviously have the obvious of friendship there but you seem to no matter what film either you can say the, the other person has seen it and there's always like some insight into it it just makes it all the more fascinating to hear about these obscure movies and just have these like insights it just makes you inspire you to want to go out and hunt these films down which I think is always like I suppose the key thing whenever you're doing any sort of uh, criticism in this field is to inspire people to obviously go out and find things so. it's true yeah you're like you're trying to share what it is that makes you excited about it and you're trying to get try to articulate that somehow and try to get that across to the to the reader or the listener and yeah that's really what it's all about um but i mean obviously uh coming up on this the slate i mean you've got anything that's sort of coming out uh coming out in the immediate future at all or is it working on cinema sewer volume six uh so yeah people uh can go to fabpress.com uh, if they're in uh, the UK or Europe and uh, uh, pick up the books there, uh, Cinema Sewer uh, and uh, Graphic Thrills. Uh, if they're in North America, go to cinemasewer.com. Uh, and I've got all my zines and uh, all the coloring books and all the books that, I, that I've put out. And also even some of the uh, DVDs, like the Retardotron DVDs that I've done. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm always working on new stuff, and there's always a new Cinema Sewer every February, so. Yes, uh, you just reminded me as well, the Retardatron 3000, which <laughs> is your mixtape. Yeah. Um, and I've heard there's some interesting material on there, from what I've read. I personally don't think I'm... <laughs> strong-willed enough to actually watch it from what i heard. You should try it. You should just like, just delve in for just a few minutes, see how it goes. I think I think it's going to be like one of those those tapes where you, 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 you watch it and there's like certain films I watch and you're looking black at the sort of black mirror 
that your screen becomes and you like question your life choices. <laughs> we try to we try not to make it too much of a bummer. Like it's it's uh so there's not like, you know, a lot of like death footage or anything. It's it's so it's 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 light. It's it's disgusting, but it's light. So you'll I think you'll find you're not gonna get bummed out by it. You may get a little grossed out. Uh, there's, you're gonna be amazed. There's, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically if people don't know it or haven't seen it, it's, it's a, it's a video mixtape. So it's, it's all different forms of media, all kind of put into a blender, and the way the the clips are juxtaposed uh, together almost makes an, a new form of entertainment. Uh, it's. It's something that used to be done a lot in the old days with tape trading and you, know, you tape clips together and and uh, and you know edit them together with two VCRs. But we've kind of updated into the kind of modern. Uh, so there's a lot of you know internet clips, but also uh, things from movies and old TV pilots and weird porn and uh, it's I, I call it a, a party DVD. It's something you can put on in the background of a party if your friends are really liberal. <laughs> and uh, it's people are gonna. It's just gonna be something that's gonna people are. It's gonna cause conversation and people are going to be entertained by it it's going to be a talking point from what i can tell to say the least to say the least um and again this is something you carried across into your podcast you have all these wonderful audio clips and you have mashups on there as well uh that open up the start of every show and i think there's one that you have i can't remember which episode it is where i think it's hello kitty getting punched in the face or something it sounds like so (laughs) yeah yeah, my friend uh, Wayne Butane is the guy who does those audio mashups, uh, and is so nice enough to let to let us use his great uh, his great juxtaposing uh, abilities. He really does really great editing work, and uh, we really appreciate what he does for us. Um, well, Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the air show this evening. Thank you uh, again for coming on and talking about obviously your uh, not your books, but uh, obviously your taste in uh, cult and uh, classic filth. Hey, it's a great ego stroke to just come along and just talk about yourself for two hours. <laughs> I mean, even now, I mean, we've been, as I said, we've been talking for two hours, and I feel there's still a wealth of subjects we haven't even touched on. I mean, we haven't talked about Pam Greer. We've not talked about black exploitation or kung fu movies and stuff. So it's it's just that's a perfect, you know, it's there's it's a perfect example of how much is out there. It's 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 a whole world of genre cinema for people to uh, to track down and and uh, you couldn't you couldn't cover it all in two episodes yeah. or two hours. I mean, <laughs> I would I mean I would more would love to have you back on at some point if you're uh, happy to come back. So yeah, sure, man, let's do it. Um, but um, again, thank you uh, for for coming on. If uh, people obviously want to follow your works, where's the best place to find you? Like I said, cinemasewer.com is a good place. It's, that's kind of my hub site, so you can you can find my Facebook page there, and you can uh, you can look me up on uh, on Twitter uh, under Robin Bougie and and uh, Facebook under Robin Bougie, B O U G I E, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's I'm around. I'm easy. To, I mean, it's easy to chat with. I'm a personable guy. <laughs> Again, thank you everyone for listening to the show. If you uh, want to follow us on Twitter, you can do. My Twitter is Elwood underscore Jones. We are on the Facebook as well. Just look for From the Depths of DVD Hell, the sporting blog for which you can find at fromthedepthsofdvdhell.blogspot.co.uk. Until next time, though, this is Elwood Jones signing off edition of the Mad Bad Diamond Strange Showcase. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange.